0: My first thought when I went back to my cell was well one I'm going to die and two can I have children and I learned really quickly that I wasn't going to die and yes I could have children and that was really important but it was incredibly um, isolating in prison. given a diagnosis, and you can't go on the internet and Google about it. You can't go to your local clinic. The fact that you just couldn't have a conversation about it. I mean, one thing that I will say is like, in terms of confidentiality, unbelievable. So it wasn't because I, I was up on the drug free wing, which was also the lifer wing for the latter part of the time I was in prison, there were other women in the prison with HIV And it wasn't until I left prison and went to Positively Women for a support group, there were two other women, one that had been my next door neighbor and one that was across the hallway living with HIV and none of us knew. None of us knew. So we walked into this group and it was just like, oh my fucking God, you know, it's like, what are you doing here? And it's like, well, what are you doing here? And then it's like, obviously we're all here for the same reason, but just a testament to, if nothing else, Like, I never knew about that person and I lived next door to them for a number of months. And it made me feel really sad as well because it was just like, fuck, I could have had that support from my next door neighbour. Yeah. And we just didn't know.
1: My name is Mark Thompson and I'm a 52-year-old social justice activist and this is We Were Always Here, a documentary series that explores the UK HIV epidemic through the voices of those who are most affected but are often missing from the mainstream narratives. As a black gay man living with HIV since 1986 who has been involved at the forefront of activism, advocacy and prevention it was important to me that these stories were told. This isn't the definitive history of the UK HIV epidemic, but it's our history, moments from our lives that defined the epidemic for us.
0: Pretty hard work, actually. The misogyny was about the fact that I was not a gay man. Yes, I'm, I'm not part of that community in the sense that, yes, I've got a vagina and I have a child, but I knew that the systems and processes had to be good enough to be able to manage the onslaught of mental health issues that were coming up as well, like the shocking grief that people were feeling. I think that the, the gender bias that has and continues to play out around HIV has been a big facilitator in that invisibility. I know there's change, I acknowledge that. The community still needs to do more. We can always do more.
1: Positively Women was the only national registered charity offering peer support for women living with HIV by women living with HIV. The organisation was formed in 1987 by two HIV-positive women who identified the need for services specifically for women.
3: In, in 87, what happened was I got a bad case of shingles. And I knew by that point that this could be a sign of immunosuppression. And I knew by then that I had been like at risk over many years in many different ways. Uh, so I went to I went to get a test. And then about a week after that, they basically told me, well, the first they didn't even tell me I had HIV. They said, are you pregnant? Right, I said, no, <laughs> hope not. And they said, well, you can never get pregnant. And if you get pregnant, you'll die and your child will die. I I was like, well, "What are you telling me that I've got HIV?" Well, yes, you have HIV. Basically, we weren't seen as people ourselves. We were seen as potential mothers or mothers or you know, baby machines. And then, basically, I, I said to them, "Okay, well, what should? What can you do for me? Uh, can you can you give me like a physical examination? Are there any tests I need to have?" And they were, they said to me, the doctor said to me, "No, uh, we can give you palliative care when you're dying." Just come back to us when you're tired. I spent the next day or so with my friend Peter trawling around the bookshops in London, just looking for some... anything, anything that was written about HIV, you know?
1: Kate Thompson joined the founders by chance.
3: There was um, an old listings magazine, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, City Limits. There was an ad in there saying seeking other women living with HIV for support group, and it was like, oh my God, that that sense of just just seeing the words there, you know, um, was amazing. So I went down the end of the road because clearly I didn't have a I didn't have a telephone, didn't have, let alone a mobile phone. Went to the phone box and, and made a call, was you know put through to this this woman Mary from an organisation called SCODA, which at the time was the Standing Conference on Drug Abuse. And it was based up in Farrington. And they were allowing their space to be used one, I think it was every Wednesday, to support this new support group. So I went along and I walked in and I was the third person that had ever come. There was these two friends, Sheila and Janie, who'd known each other for years, who'd been in drug rehab, Phoenix House together, and had come from a background where I think Having those sort of spaces where you you talk about stuff and you know your little groups, and whatever. but they've sort of been used to that, so they've realised as they've both been diagnosed that they needed to set up something for for, for women with HIV. So they've been meeting regularly for I think a couple of
4: months, and then I was the first person that turned up
1: shortly after. So did Caroline Guinness McGann.
4: I knew quite a few gay men with the virus, but I hadn't met any women at all. And so someone at the Terence Higgins Trust told me that they thought there might be a women's group and gave me a number, which I called. There was no answer. Eventually, I got someone. And it was a woman called Sheila Gilchrist. And we were meant to meet. She couldn't make it. And I met Kate Thompson. So she was the first positive woman I met. Then I met Sheila. We hit it off straight away. And she said, Would I be interested in forming a proper charity and a proper organization? So we started Positively Woman and uh, Terence Higgins Trust gave us a couple of rooms in Kings Cross, just opposite uh, the station. We started putting out hand drawing leaflets and putting them everywhere we could think of that women would see them. And uh, the women started coming. And we were from such different backgrounds. It was extraordinary.
5: My name is Angelina Namiba, and I started working at Positively Women very soon after my, about maybe two, three years after my diagnosis. You know, walking into that room and seeing those women, I can't quite describe the feeling. I remember I used to, one of the things I used to do at Positively Women was to co-facilitate a support group. We used to have weekly support groups then, and we had women coming from all all over London and a few from outside. And I remember on you know on a group night, we'd have maybe 20 or maybe even 30 women coming in. And I remember I knew the postcode of each and every woman who came to attend the service. Because you'd sit at the reception and you'd you know sign people in as they came in. It reached a point I knew all the postcodes, you know. That's how much of a family it was, because <laughs> but it was such a safe space for women. It was very women friendly. It was It was everything you needed in terms of support for women at the time. So what we would say when a woman first came in was, right,
4: let's deal with your practical problems first, and then we'll get on to the emotional side. Mm -hmm. So do you have somewhere to live? Do you have any money? Do you have this? We'd sort all of that out for them first, first and foremost. And obviously childcare, trying to negotiate safer sex with straight men was almost impossible. Mm. And for the women who had fled their countries, whose kids were still left behind, usually with a mum or an aunt, we organised through the Home
5: Office to get those kids back to join them
4: here with them.
5: All the issues that women, whether you're white, black, you name it, were facing with living with HIV, migrant women were facing, but also add on the issue around uh, immigration, you know, what's your status going to be? You're still waiting on the home office to make a decision. In the meantime, you're not allowed to work. For many of the women, they're not necessarily independent. So living with families or partners, and a lot of times they're emotionally, economically dependent on their partners. So telling somebody about your status could mean the difference between you having a home and not. So in a way, I think for migrant women, it was kind of a double double stigma, double burden of dealing with HIV, and that's why organisations like Positively Women were amazing, because then they could allay some of those burdens and support women and treat them like human beings. I mean, we covered so many different areas.
4: We worked with housing associations. We were doing a lot of talks for health staff, uh, social workers, um, you name it.
1: How was Positively Women supported? Did you have to struggle in those early days to get yourselves up and running and functional?
0: Uh, yes
4: and no. I just put that concert together. Mm. I had a, a huge pool of volunteers and different people. It was an emergency. It was, you just called on everyone and everything, you know. Um, there was a woman called Marguerite Littman, mm. who was a kind of socialite, very wealthy socialite. Anyway, she said I should meet Di, Princess Di and so she introduced me to her and we we hit it off straight away and of course she'd already been doing work with gay men mm. it was a surprise to her to to find out about us so she became a real supporter and thatcher came out new labor came in and so government funding started mm. but all of a sudden it was management meetings it was uh, we have to have somebody in your support group. No, you can't. I'm sorry. It's just for positive women, you know, all of that. But we got a building. We got a new building in Islington and Di came and opened that for us. She had these bodyguards and sort of people around her and she told them all to bugger off, basically, and said I just, she just wanted to be with us. So we went down there. We had a room in the basement and we just sat there together. And there was a wonderful, wonderful, one of the very first positive women called Janie and uh, she was incredibly funny and wonderful. And Di was wearing this great suit. And I remember Janie, she was real cockney. She went, oh, can I have that suit for when I die so I can be buried in it? And I it was like, So we are all laughing, you know, and it was like... And Sheila had a baby, Laurie, so she loved Laurie. And I had my daughter there as well, who was like, oh, it's a princess, but she was lovely with her. But, of course, the funding came in, you know, we, we got stuff, I realised... One of the things that I'd been doing, trying to save the world and helping everybody, was I had never actually thought about myself as having the virus. Because as long as I had other people to help, I didn't have to think about me. Mm. I started getting ill. So I left, and but continued to, to do talks for them, support
1: them. What was that feeling like for you to to connect with those women at that point?
4: Like I come home, yeah like i come home for everything that i've done it's it's the peer support and those support groups which are definitely the things that i think were the the most empowering and the most important
1: positively women would go on to become positively uk an organisation dedicated to providing direct peer support to all communities living with and affected by HIV across the United Kingdom. When I first started to access services, you know, I, would fit in you know because I was a gay man but sometimes I stuck out because I was a black man but there were certain things that connected me to other guys be it maybe the films that I liked or the music that I listened to but I was always younger and I wasn't unwell so those things kept me at a distance but as I've learned and I learned the language and the way to be in spaces I became much more comfortable and people became more comfortable with me but I have witnessed those differences where people haven't fitted in or be able to sit comfortably being in groups and spaces where you know it's overwhelmingly english or british be that black or white and there'll be a brazilian guy or a polish speaker or an arabic guy and they're welcomed but they're still on the outside because people don't understand those cultural differences that are there and that's where we have to do better and hiv unites us absolutely But how we come to that HIV because of our cultural or our ethnic differences really informs how we live with that HIV. So now I want to talk about your release. So you go along to Positively Women. You've been getting support from somebody coming in to see you. You go along to POS Women, to this support group. What is it like when you go into this space with all these women? You've already talked about meeting the women from prison, but what's it like when you go in there? There was a part of
0: me that still didn't want to accept that this was my reality. So there was that kind of, yeah, but.
1: Sophie Strachan is an activist and sexual health advisor. She is also the director of the Sophia Forum, which exists to empower all women living with HIV.
0: You know, it's like, it was like on some level, I desperately, somewhere inside of me, wanted to connect because this was my reality. But on the other side, it was just like, no, nah, I don't, don't want to be a part of this, you know? And that feels really uncomfortable to say because some of that is based in prejudice, the internalised stigma and that just, you know, mass self-rejection that is in us all, you know? And And also it was just like, I come out with more isms, do you know what I mean? It was like... Not only now was I, you know, an ex-offender, an an ex-drug user, I'm now HIV positive. So it's like that multiple stigma. I needed something beyond HIV for a connection. And I needed to be around like-minded people who were accepting of me. So even if they accepted me about my HIV, they weren't accepting me because of my you know, criminality and my drug use, you know? So where I found that connection and that like-mindedness around my drug use is in recovery. You know, I, I've been going to 12 step meetings for 17 years, you know? So, but I didn't talk about my HIV in the recovery rooms because of the fear of, you know, the stigma and, and, and everything. And it happened, you know? But I think I'd been going to a meeting for two years before I, and it was my home group, it was an LGBT meeting every Friday, and I, you know, amazing group, but I never opened my mouth about my HIV diagnosis in prison for like two years in that, in that meeting. So for me, I ended up volunteering for POS UK and I got my peer support from my colleagues.
1: People often ask me, what was the turning point of my activism? And I don't think there was any single moment. It was an evolution over a number of years. I think one of the most significant moments, though, that I remember was when I was asked to... And it was the first time I spoke really publicly about my HIV. And I was going to the landmark service centre and um, was a regular user of the services there. It was in Tulse Hill. And Colin Grant, who was the volunteer coordinator, invited me to speak to a new intake of volunteers to just tell my story. And I went along on a Saturday afternoon and it just felt like a really safe space to do it in. And so I told this bunch of volunteers my story. Truth be told, I love an audience and I love telling a story because when I was at school, I was a kid that always wanted to get up and tell their stories. And for me, that's what I was simply doing. And I saw then the impact that my story had on those volunteers wanting to do something, and then from there, it just led and, and eventually moved the chair around from being somebody who was sitting, getting support to somebody that wanted to help other people. And the response I got of gratitude, understanding and empathy shifted something in me in so far as I thought, oh my gosh, I've got something here which can make a difference to people. And around the same time as me having that personal realisation, other black gay men that I knew were starting to set up small workshops for other black gay men to teach them about safer sex. Because a lot of the bigger organisations who were doing work around gay men were not addressing the specific cultural needs or issues which might impact on black gay men like myself. So they started to run workshops and um, I kind of asked if I could join. And uh, before you knew it, I was co-facilitating training workshops most weekends for black gay men on how to use condoms how to say no, how to find alternatives I mean getting 20 black gay men to use dental dams is one of my abiding memories I mean I wouldn't call it activism then but my voluntary work was certainly a way for me to process my own HIV it again enveloped me in another bubble of safety because I surrounded myself with people that understood HIV, understood what this world meant, even if they weren't positive themselves. So therefore I was able to bat away the nonsense and the noise by being in there. But then it empowered me to then go back out into the world and go, actually, I'm not wrong. You're wrong. I'm on the right side of history here. And therefore I can stand quite strong in that space, which is trying to do me harm because you're wrong for trying to do me that harm and others like me. And I think at that moment, I started to commit myself to the work. And people say to me, what, what are you most proud of? What have you done? And it will always be where I trained positive people to be empowered. That will always be my proudest achievement because I saw me, I, I saw me walk into those spaces. And the fact that I went from that boy to that man to do that will always be my proudest achievement, always. That's that's what those places were like. In the next episode of We Were Always Here,
5: I remember when I was starting treatment, he explained to me about how treatment works and he drew for me a picture of a bin, you know, the bin with the lid on it. And, and he said to me that um, inside here is your HIV. When you take your medication properly at the right time, the lid stays closed and it keeps the HIV contained and it's not doing you any harm. There was a whole buzz about the new treatment, but I hadn't been listening to, to what was going on. All I wanted to know was, How long did I have? So when I turned up, they told me, where have, you know, the doctor was like, where have you been? You need to get on treatment, you know, like yesterday.
1: We Were Always Here was presented by me, Mark Thompson. It was produced by Hannah Walker-Brown. The production assistant was Rory Boyle. This is a Broccoli Production.